Friday Remembrance. We're entering into our second meditation. Just heard of the women of the cross and we now move further on to think about the centurion and his place in this story. This is a very simple service, a very simple space. We begin in worship and praise before hearing a passage read and a reflection on it. After that reflection, we enter into a time of extended silence where we invite you to think and contemplate the things that we've spoken about. We conclude with a piece of reflective music after prayer to help you continue to think and reflect.
Luke 23, verse 44 to 49. It was now about noon. The darkness came over the whole land until three into the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I come. My spirit... When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people had gathered to witness this sight, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who had knew, knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Nails pierce, blood rolls, breath stops. We are the centurion. No one stood closer to Jesus than the centurion. He was a man of incredible authority, soldiers under him, ready to carry out his every command. The ability to take a man's life with barely a backward glance, the centurion. Subject of myth and sainthood, legend and lie, he has been made to be significant. Yet in our story today, he goes unnamed. The killer is incidental. As blood flows from Jesus onto the hands of our centurion, he goes unrecognized and unrecognizing. We long to find the killer of Jesus as a man worthy of the title. Desperate that it wouldn't have been a common mercenary to take the life of Jesus, but someone who went on to be significant, to change things. But this is his mundane, his routine, day to day. The same ritual undertaken thousands of times before. Political activists, thieves, religious zealots all find themselves in his bloodied hands and all go the same way. He wakes up, eats breakfast, gets dressed, kisses his wife and children goodbye, then heads off for work. Today is another execution day and he has things to arrange. He carefully, delicately flogs the prisoner to within an inch of his life. Thoughts drifting to plans for the evening, dinner with friends. He forces the cross onto the prisoner's back and lazily oversees the march, long winding, up to Golgotha, talking with the other soldiers as he goes. A man breaks rank from the crowd, trying to help the prisoner carry the cross. The centurion isn't concentrating. He didn't sleep well last night. It snaps back into focus, gets the man away. They have to do this themselves, alone. That's the rule. The cross is rammed into the hole cut for it, nails forced through ankles and wrists and raised into position with a dull thud. On the day that all history and human life revolves around, the centurion isn't concentrating. There is nothing remarkable here. 
Our centurion may have known this person was significant to some, heard mumblings from the Jewish community, but Rome regularly made examples of such people, so it would scarcely have registered. This is a man just doing his job. Then it went dark. For three hours, the sun blotted out. Jesus cries, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The words that follow next are ambiguous. Certainly, he says, this was a righteous man. Righteousness, rightness, the quality of being morally upstanding. This was a word that would have carried weight and value to the centurion, particularly within his sphere of leadership. It would have made sense to him. His life was governed by doing the right thing, obeying the command. It was the job of those under orders to carry them out. So in Jesus crying out to the Father, the centurion understands that Jesus recognizes himself as a man under orders. The submission of Jesus on the cross echoes with the submission the centurion expects from men under his charge, and so he connects with it. He might well have issued commands that ordered men fight to the death, and he himself may have received that same command, though lived to fight another day. The centurion's words would have been tinged with respect for a job carried out, unstintingly, inflexibly executed. He finds Jesus morally upstanding. In Mark, we see the centurion given different words. Truly, he says, this was a son of God. This is spoken by a Roman like a Roman, meaning something different and distinct to a Hebrew saying the same phrase. The Hebrew worldview presumed largely upon one God, the Roman upon a multitude of gods. Uh, To understand the words of the centurion, we have to enter into his world. He's a resident in the Roman Empire, with the Roman understanding of a pantheon of gods, where more are added for different trades, acts, seasons, almost as a whim, like collecting football stickers. It's from this world that he calls Jesus the Son of God, putting him on the same shelf as the gods of the bronze trays, or the one who makes the crops grow. Maybe he is declaring him to be the son of God, the one true Yahweh, suddenly trading in his whole worldview, his whole culture. This seems unlikely, though, through seeing a man defeated, in between two criminals hanging on a cross. Uh, We read this passage as ourselves, and so presume the centurion is professing faith. We want to hear him change his mind. It would give us some comfort to believe that he recognizes who Jesus is. It would tie the story off neatly and resolve it for us. He is likely not. I don't know that he sees it. The spear pierces Jesus' side. Blood runs down his fingers, over his wrists, and down his arm. And he still doesn't see who Jesus is. A parent rushes down Princess Street, child in tow, parking meter about to run out. The child stops to gaze at the clock tower of the Scotsman, struck by its size and grandeur, and their smallness next to it. They think about their place in the world, 
For a moment they wonder if the world truly revolves around them, or perhaps there's something bigger at play, interrupted by the parent dragging them on. The thought passes. A student, dazed, tired, unthinking, doesn't hear the homeless person's request for some money and a cup of tea, and so miss the chance for a conversation, a divine moment, the chance to encounter the something of Christ in that person. The same bike rides every morning, out down the flat steps, barely a glance up at Arthur's seat, ignoring the beauty of Northbridge, Carlton Hill, not looking down to the sea and North Berwick Law. No sense of wonder at the beauty of things. Routine breeds indifference, and indifference hardens and deafens. I'm moved by how close it's possible to be to Jesus, inches away and still somehow not recognize him. To be blinded by our own worldviews, the things that we presume God to be or do, and so miss what's happening right in front of us. To write something off as normal and mundane when the reality is that it's divine and transforming. From the outside, it seems impossible that we would miss it, but somehow we contrive to. Today, we remember not just the moments that he hung on the cross for, but the moments where we too, like the centurion, missed the miracle taking place in front of us. There are rumors and myths as to where the centurion goes from here and what difference this encounter with Christ on the cross makes to him. Within another tradition, our anonymous centurion is named Longinus, Saint Longinus. The story goes that he followed Jesus all his days and was later martyred for faith as Jesus was. Maybe that's true. Maybe he hears of Jesus rising again, professes faith, and his life is forever changed as a result. I find nothing in this story to suggest that happens. That isn't how we leave the centurion today. Nails pierce, blood rolls, breath stops. We are the centurion. <laughs>